All right, welcome everybody uh, to the uh, the first general talk. We're very excited to have all of you here. I uh, just wanted to do a quick introduction uh, for uh, for who we are, uh, as well as what the Joe Talks is all about. And I'll do a short introduction of, of, of our presenters today. Uh, we're very excited to have them here. We're very excited to, to be starting this initiative. Uh, um, and we're really excited about where this is going to be going forward. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with our office, uh, we fall under the Office of the People of the United States. Uh, we have been for quite a while. Uh, in fact, the Army supported the first uh, Best Picture winner uh, back in 1927, uh, the movie Wings. So we've been doing this for quite a while. Uh, the way this office is constructed today, uh, it was uh, back in 1952, we stood up this office to support uh, positive representations of the Army and entertainment media. And I think uh, everybody that's out there now will see that, uh, you know, the strategic impact of, of representations in entertainment media uh, are, are pretty obvious. Uh, research and statistics reinforce that, uh, that for subjects that the American public is, is unfamiliar with, uh, they get a lot of their, their knowledge and understanding of a topic from entertainment media, which is why we've been out here for seven decades trying to assist you all to, to tell our story. Uh, so first and foremost, I'll introduce myself. I'm uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brett Lee. I've been uh, the Deputy Director out here since August of 2019. We also have Mr. Kenneth Hawes, who is on the line as well. Uh, he's our Director. He's been uh, as our civilian since 2008. We also have our, our NCO, Sergeant First Class Nathan Hutchison, who's been here uh, since this summer. So we are a, a small team, uh, but we, we feel like we punch above our weight uh, for what we get done out here. Uh, and we're really proud to be doing it uh, on behalf of the of uh, Brigadier General Hannah uh, and our communication mission. Uh, so without further ado, I'll, I'll just sort of lay out the guidelines of what the Joe Talks are about. Uh, you know, our endeavor is to connect with you all directly uh, through these forums uh, at least once a month to inform you about uh, about the Army mission, our operations and initiatives, as well as the men and women who serve in our uniform uh, and serve uh, our nation. Uh, we want to inform you about all of that, but then we also want to inspire you to tell our story. We want to help you tell our story because we think it's a pretty good one. So for the purposes of this first engagement, uh, we, uh, we will be using the hands up and the, the Q&A feature. Uh, once our speakers uh, are done with their initial presentation, you know, we'll take Q&A question, uh, questions and answers. Uh, we'll have a few questions for them as well. So if you have a question, please put it in the, the Q&A box, okay? So uh, we're really happy to have from the, the Joint uh, Program Executive Office uh, for Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear Defense, uh, Dr. Jason Roos, who is uh, who is the program executive, um, and we're really excited to have him here. We also have the the pro joint program manager for Seaver and Medical, Colonel Ryan Eckmeyer. So thank you to both gentlemen for coming on to our first Joe Talks. Uh, very quick, I, I won't steal any of their thunder to explain what it is to do. Uh, but I will say that uh, that it is a, uh, a civilian military multidisciplinary organization uh, whose mission is to protect U.S. joint forces from all the previous threats that I just mentioned. Uh, he is a, a Ph.D., uh, also holds a Bachelor of Arts in Chemistry from the College of Holy Cross. 
uh, as well as his PhD in biochemistry, cellular and molecular biology from Johns Hopkins. Uh, and he also, because you know, it's an impressive resume, you have to go through all of these. Uh, he's got a master's of science in, from, uh, in national resource strategy from the Eisenhower School at the National Defense University. So um, I think he's gonna know what he's talking about today. Uh, Colonel Ryan Eckmeyer, like I said, the joint program manager, uh, project manager, excuse me, for Seaburn Medical. Uh, is responsible for medical countermeasures uh, against seaburn threats, um, as well as diagnostic efforts in support of the nation's um, chemical and biological defense. Uh, he was commissioned from Western Illinois University and ROTC program in 1997. He holds a, an MBA and an MA from Webster University, as well as an MA in applied economics from Oklahoma, and a master's in national security studies from the U.S. Army War College. So. Uh, two very impressive gentlemen here with us today. Uh, so I would like to, at this point, turn it over to them for uh, for their comments. And thank you, gentlemen. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you doing today? You guys hear me okay, I think? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Let me take this off. Ooh, that's much better. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for your time today. Um, Jason Roos, Colonel Lee, thank you for that uh, introduction. I appreciate it. So what you're looking at uh, with that mask and what I have on here, this, the suit, the gloves, the boots, this is the state of the art for chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear defense. This is the, the standard piece of equipment that we give our military to protect them from those threats. Um, as you can see, it's a coat, it's a mask, these boots and gloves. So just imagine for a moment being in the Middle East, running across the desert, being shot at, trying to take cover, what that must be like. Imagine trying to fire a weapon, especially through that mask. Imagine trying to drive a vehicle, a truck, a car, uh, imagine trying to use a phone. I mean, I, I don't think I could text or do anything right now with this without fumbling around. Try using a computer. Imagine trying to go grocery shopping. Could you imagine walking around Wegmans with uh, something like this on? Well, with COVID, we got lucky. And fortunately, we don't have to wear this kind of stuff as we go around our daily, daily basis and everything. We get to wear a mask in our normal clothes. Unfortunately, our adversaries, they're cooking up much worse things than COVID. And it's the reason why we've got to prepare this type of equipment in order to protect our military. Our job here at the JPEO for ChemBio Rad Nuke Defense is to develop the protective gear like I'm wearing right now to be able to protect against those threats, to develop the tools to be able to find those threats and sniff them out tools to be able to treat those threats, and then the tools to be able to destroy those threats. Whether we're talking about COVID or we're talking about a threat from our adversary, at the end of the day, the response is going to be the same. And as a result, the Department of Defense and the Army have been pulled into this uh, national response for COVID because it looks a lot like we normally do, it looks like a lot, a lot like what we would do in a biological event. And so we've brought to bear 
the people, the process, the infrastructure, uh, a lot of other tools to the table to help and assist in this national response. So we can talk a little bit about that today and to turn it over to our lead for medical, Colonel Ryan Ekmeyer. Hello, everybody, and thanks for that introduction, Brett. Uh, so I, I would just like to start by saying uh, the, all of the things that we were able to do were enabled by our partnerships and our people. So all of the folks that we have on the bench to develop things like this it was it's our next generation diagnostic system uh, that uh, I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, all of those things that looks decidedly complex, right? Simple yet complex because it's going to be a di diagnostic device that you can use for clinical diagnosis. Well, a lot of the things that we did in response to this, you know, in late 2019 started hearing uh, things coming out of, uh, of uh, other parts of the world. Uh, we, we started what we, what we do. We go through our, our processes. We say, you know, this is what we may have. We, we, and then the genomic sequence was released in early January. Uh, and we started, started looking at what the things that we had on the shelf and what things we could develop. So one of the things you need to do is be able to know when somebody has, like this during this pandemic, has COVID-19. This device, uh, with the help of several of our partners uh, across the uh, DOD and academia and industry, we're able to develop a emergency use authorization diagnostic device, uh, a diagnostic um, uh, assay test to use that, that in about in about uh, 40 minutes, you can get a result of whether you're positive or negative. So that sounds really complex, right? And we have a whole group of uh, folks, subject matter experts that are the world's best at what they do, be it manufacturing for drug development, be it all these other component pieces for diagnostics. But believe it or not, the most unsexy things of all these complex things that we do ended up bringing us to our knees. And here's an example of that. And so as we were sitting there working with all of our partners across across the, the DOD, uh, as well as uh, academia and industry, uh, a global supply chain, uh, I called it uh, supply chain whack-a-mole. The first thing to kind of go up was the uh, nasal pharyngeal swab. Some of you may have been swabbed by this. It's, it's, it's the brain catcher. Uh, this nasal pharyngeal swab, and I'll open it up here in a minute. And no, Dr. Roos, I'm not gonna take a swab. <laughs> But as you can see, this is just a simple, simple nasal pharyngeal swab, and this is what gets the uh, sample from the back of the nasal pharyngeal area to go into the, uh, to go into the. Uh, okay, you got it. So I'm holding up a pen, so just a comparison. If you haven't been swabbed, I know a lot of you may have been swabbed, but I just wanted to highlight this as an example. So this is a 3D printed swab, and it's sterilized by a third party that our team in, in, in conjunction with several other folks uh, across the DOD were able to do rather quickly to meet a critical need because globally, no one had any of these swaps. Um, in addition to that, uh, while we're trying to solve this, uh, our uh, chief technology officer, uh, Dr. Kevin Wingard, happened to be having an emergency root canal done. And they pulled out another uh, device that looks a lot like this and he says, that's a that that uh, micro brush that they use for to go into the, your uh, into your mouth. He says, why can't we re repurpose that and use that as a nasal pharyngeal swab? Actually, about four weeks later, with the with the help of the Office of the Surgeon General, uh, uh, Medical Research and Development Command, and other partners across DoD, we were able to get that as a uh, class one device to be able to be used uh, uh, through the FDA. So. Uh, just a scratch in the surface of the things that the that the that the team did and building and cementing those relationships that we had to be able to enable us to respond 
so, I mean, uh, from the complex to the unbelievably simple that you wouldn't think would ever be a problem, uh, that's exactly, and we're finding more of those every day throughout the entire global supply chain uh, as more people demand, uh, you know, all of the component pieces that build a therapeutic, uh, therapeutic drug or a vaccine or syringes or, or um, vials or any of the component pieces, all the thousands of plastic pieces and metal pieces that fit inside this nice little device right here. Um, all of those have been illuminated because everybody in the globe is uh, looking for those. And unfortunately, the state-of-the-art device or uh, outfit that Dr. Roos is wearing, uh, I guess, I guess I, we could probably nip this in the bud overnight, right, sir? We just put seven billion, seven billion plus people in the world in a suit such as that and put them in full PPE. So, uh, uh, but I, that's just not feasible. So with that, uh, all these things, and I'll just turn it back over to you, sir. Yeah, thanks, Colonel. So um, this, this uh, pandemic has clearly uh, really brought, you know, a lot of turmoil to our lives. It has really slowed us down and it's, it's in many ways brought our lives to a, lives to a complete halt. Um, but it's not just us on the personal side, it's the military as well. Uh, early on, uh, many of you may know or have seen the Teddy Roosevelt, you know, one of our the military's biggest demonstration of its of its uh, of its power, of its might, its threat deterrence is an aircraft carrier. The USS Teddy Roosevelt got bit by COVID. Over 20 percent of the sailors got bit by COVID and had to pull into port in Guam. Unfortunately, we lost a sailor in that as well. That's a really bad day, not, not only because we lost a soldier or a sailor, but not, and not only because we had 20% 20, 20 of the people offline, but our show of force in the Pacific was sitting in a dock in Guam. A very bad day for us. Also, what you may not be aware of um, is our training base, the folks that are the next generation of soldiers, sailor, air, airmen, and Marines also came to a halt. The Army had to, had to stop training for several weeks. And just to put that into perspective for you, that translates to the, the Army trains about 75,000 people a year. In fact, I didn't even know that <laughs> prior to this year. It's a lot of people. So you take the Army training offline for weeks. Now you're talking about thousands of people that are no longer moving into the pipeline. Um, so that's significant impact, let alone the Pentagon. Pentagon bustling with over 20,000 people a day. It looked like a, a scene from The Shining with virtually nobody <laughs> in those halls. It was freaky at, at, at midday. Tremendous impact to the department, tremendous impact um, to our military. And so Colonel Eckmeyer talked about the diagnostics. But in addition to diagnostics, and that's what we had early, we needed something before we could start to fill the gap with vaccines okay so we had to start working on vaccines and we needed therapeutics and we needed something to go after and target this disease and so we put a lot of energy and effort into what could we do to accelerate those vaccines and accelerate those therapeutics well fortunately and, it, and it's a big target area for us is our ability to rapidly respond and so we pulled off the shelf and we reached out to our industry partners that have been working on what are uh, you know, other vaccines and other therapeutics for other targets and adopted them for COVID. And the ability to go quickly, so you see the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine, the ability to go quickly was we were able to take 
that fundamental technology and now apply it very quickly to COVID. 10 years is the typical pathway to develop a vaccine. Mumps, I think, was not four years. This is the fastest we had done to date. We're looking at having developed a vaccine in a year across the U.S. government. That's pretty remarkable. And in the meantime, we've also been able to get, you probably heard about monoclonal antibodies. Um, if you watch news at night, you can see countless examples, Humira and Tevio, some of those things. Those are monoclonal antibodies. Repurpose now that same fundamental technology to go after COVID, allowed us to go fast. Department of Defense is, and the Army is playing a critical role in help enabling bringing those capabilities to the US public, bringing those capabilities to the Department of Defense. And so the ability to go fast has really been enabled by taking some risk and doing things in parallel. It's a massive parallelization is the word I call it. So doing manufacturing while we're doing human studies, while we're doing animal studies, doing that all at once and working very closely with the FDA. So another area where we've been able to fill that gap on the therapeutic side is an area that Colonel Eckmeyer has been working with his team in the therapeutic space. Yeah, thanks, sir. And so I, I, I talked about the simple things and all of these things are, are oversimplifications. Obviously, this is very tough work. And, and as Dr. Roos mentioned, 10 to 15 years, a couple billion dollars to normally do drug development. And we're doing these in, uh, you know, in months as opposed to years. Uh, but one of the specific things that we're that we're going to be uh, that that is that has borne fruit for us is being able to take and it's and, and again it's it's something uncool it's not it's not something that's you know got a lot of whiz bang to it but you're taking a drug that is already on an indication for another uh, to treat another disease or or, or or symptom or condition and then you're repurposing it as you as you take apart the disease progression of COVID. So, you know, at the at the very beginning, you know, remember there was the shortage of ventilators and we were involved working with our partners to help them on on some of those pieces from an acquisition perspective. But also now you don't hear a lot about ventilation anymore because a lot of those those repurposed drugs treating those those symptoms. And if I can say it correctly, the symptomology of, of those pieces across the disease progression to be able to find, you know what, this works against this. So we're trying to we're trying to stop viral replication. So we don't want more SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. We don't want more of those in our system. So we have a class of drugs that we're looking at and have proven out a couple of them to stop that viral rep replication and then to stop the disease progression beyond that as far as the symptoms. So kind of two separate sides. So as we as we talk about all these things, and of course that takes a great team of subject matter experts that are that are world renowned manufacturing experts, drug development experts, regulatory experts um, that are dealing with all these and reaching out to all of our partners because I will say it again, nobody in this space does any of this alone. So having the ability to be a rate multiplier to go to our partners uh, within the federal government as well as uh, in, in DOD, as well as uh, into um, industry and, and academia who we have uh, standing relationships with, just uh, exciting to see. I, I know it's an oversimplification and it's all gonna be, but uh, very, very, very uh, difficult to do. And with that, sir, back to you. Thanks, Carl. So, um, Partnerships, partnerships, partnerships has been absolutely essential in this space, as the Colonel pointed out, across the interagency with Health and Human Services, as well as a whole host of other folks in the U.S. government. 
Department of Defense and the Army continues to play a very significant role in the fight against COVID, <clears throat> as well as uh, our fight against the CBRN threats, the ChemBio, RadNuke threats that our adversaries are trying to build and take on and, and throw at us. Our goal through the work that we're doing is to get in front of those threats, to get in front of that pandemic, so that the next time that something like this comes down the pike, we can respond even faster. We've done a phenomenal job, in my opinion, in terms of the time and what we've been able to do in just, just a year. But how do we get that from a year down to months, down to weeks, so that that next thing doesn't take us offline as far as we've been? And as it relates to the department, you know, one of the things that I think about as we're going through this is how do we put the next captain of the Theodore Roosevelt in a position where the next time this happens, the next time some sailors get sick, he's able or she's able to press on and continue to do their job. So thank you for your time and I look forward to the questions. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. That's uh, very impressive. I'm, I'm glad that we've got you guys up there working on this. Um, you you kind of hit on this uh, quite a bit. You know, in the Army, as well as most of the, uh, our, our American military, you know, we're, we pride ourselves on after action reviews. Uh, the last time that we were affected by a pandemic was obviously the Spanish flu, 1917, 1918 timeframe. Um, what you're describing is a, a whole of government response. Um, so what what do you foresee as we start to war game what happened in this pandemic, how to avoid the next epidemic becoming a pandemic? Can I start? Yeah, well, I, I think they're in one of the one of the uh, um, uh, flyers, I think at least one of the things that I saw as a preview to this is uh, so, you know, I think there's a question that we're struggling with across the interagency right now. Does it really matter if it's an engineered threat? Does it really matter if it's naturally occurring or endemic to a location? Does it really matter uh, if an adversary actually actually intended for it to to do these nasty things that that biological agents, biological pathogens, whether they be viral or bacterial are going to do? Um, so I think that's a that is a that is a key question that I think all of us that have now partnered and have spent so much time together working on all this, leveraging everybody's expertise across the Department of Defense as well as HHS and our other partners that I mentioned like several times earlier. Uh, but I think that's one of the key questions. And and then how do you how do you prepare yourself to be able to do that not only to a biological warfare agent but also to a naturally occurring uh, uh, disease such as SARS-CoV-2, sir? Yeah, and and so as we look at the, as how things played out, the partnership, as I mentioned to you before, I can't understate uh, enough. The Department of Defense brings a lot of capabilities. The Army brings a lot of capabilities to the table um, to complement those from our civilian agencies. And so as we move forward, ensuring that uh, we have that continued partnership is, is going to be a lesson learned. Um, as we look from a technical perspective, uh, as we, you know, these, I talked about the platforms in my, my comments there, how we're able to quickly adopt to the ever-changing threat is going to be critical. So we, we you know, the, the, the threat landscape continues to evolve and change. I mean, we, we've seen chemical attacks in the Middle East. We just saw not too long ago, uh, Nalvani, the, the Russian uh, that, that's outspoken against Putin's was poisoned with a chemical, uh, novel chemical agent. We saw that in Salisbury, We're, we saw Ebola. We're seeing a very ever-changing landscape. And so our ability to go fast is really gonna be 
ensuring that we have um, an investment and a continued focus on, on staying out front and preventing the next thing. And um, what we do, as Colonel Ekbar said, is not always sexy. Sometimes we're considered an insurance program. Um, and insurance, you, you, you want to pay as little as possible and you want to get as, as much uh, when you need it. Well, this is an area where uh, we probably, as a nation, need to ensure that we're putting a little bit more energy and emphasis in it so that that next time, as I talked about, we can respond quicker, we can react faster, and heck, be even better if we could prevent it from happening in the first place. Uh, that's great, gentlemen, thank you. Uh, I think, you know, part of the reason we're out here is that we wanna help entertainment professionals to tell accurate and authentic stories right, of, of our men and women who serve in uniform. Uh, so, you know, we understand that there will probably be any number of non-scripted and scripted uh, projects coming out of this time period. Uh, and so our most recent examples of the last 20 years or so was, uh, was the movie Outbreak and the movie Contagion. Uh, and without becoming Siskel and Ebert, uh, just was sort of wanting to know, what did you see in those very popular representations of a viral outbreak that you think is accurate and people should understand from, from a government response uh, what do you think maybe veers a little off uh, from that and, and you prefer to see captured in a different way with future projects? Yeah, well, I I actually thought, uh, you know, this uh, specific, uh, I mean, this pandemic uh, is uh, the Contagion movie actually is 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 pretty is pretty uh, representative uh, and had and had high marks from the scientific community as well as how how one would respond. I mean, I think uh, I think uh, you know. I, I think the one of the review points was how did you know it was going to be a bat, <laughs> and and you know potentially this was a bat even though I think the jury's out a little bit, but potentially this was a bat as well that was the source of this, uh, of this pandemic. So, um, I, and of course that was there was uh, the infectiousness was roughly about the same, and it introduced you know the the folks to our knots as far as being able to talk about. Uh, uh, how infectious a, a disease was, and folks kind of understood that from the movie. So I think that was that was all of those things were. I mean, you know, I think the I think the uh, um, a lot of the examples within the movie really really do were were pretty representative of what you would see with the CDC involvement and uh, how. And then you know, basically the threats that all of this gives to a globalized society. I mean, if you're if you're flying from. Uh, if you're flying over three different locations and you're stopping in every location, that's one more chance for you to infect somebody else, even if you don't even know you have it. And we've seen that with this too. So I think, man, I think that's my thoughts on that, sir. Yeah, I think the, I think the, especially with Contagion, it did a really good job of. That was Nipah virus too. That kind of was generally based so, yeah. on. I think so. Yeah, and I think they did a very good job of portraying the fear um, associated yeah. with 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 this. And if I, if I, you know, we take ourselves back to March. And, and it's, it's frankly, it's something we're, we're sort of dealing with right now is you know, we've been studying flu for over a, a century and, and we still don't fully understand right, flu. Right. We've been studying SARS-CoV-2 for a year at yeah. best, 10 months. And we might have had, uh, you know, a little bit of a head start with SARS-1 or, or MERS. MERS. But I think I think the movie, you know, that, that those those move um, certainly contagion did a good job of sort of portraying that fear associated with really the unknown about the effect of the disease, how contagious, how infect, 
how 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 lethal it is, et cetera. And, and that's an important piece to convey. What what uh and and what we saw uh you know play out you know before us is certainly it, Armageddon didn't happen. There's a lot of fear, but obviously um, we still were able to get our food and everything eventually after mm -hmm. those initial supply chain shocks. So um, outbreak was uh you know it's funny the whole thing about outbreak that we always used to joke about is you know the speed you know they. they Dustin Hoffman, you know, they inject the animal and all of a sudden, you know, miraculously, 10 minutes later, they got the antidote and everybody lives. And and there was a, you know, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, that was, that was science fiction. Um, now we're talking about that. I mean, that's what I was talking about in terms of speed is the and ability to. plasma. And yeah, yeah, the, the tools to be able to quickly generate those, those therapeutics um, and those antidotes. Now, I don't think we're going to get there. I don't think we're there that that fast yet, um, but we're not as far off of that as as we used to be, and and that's really, honestly, I think the holy grail for this is to really be able to react quickly to it to an ever changing threat environment, whether it's brought to us by Mother Nature or our adversaries. Um, those are my the, two comments, and on that's that. one of the reasons why we're looking specifically at symptomology and being able to yeah. treat it across. Because if if somebody's going to get sick and they're normally going to be sick for for 10 days and recover, especially for DOD, we want to get somebody, well, we want to shorten that time. We want to get them back into whatever they were doing, whether it be training, whether it be a fight that we're in. Uh, so we want to get them back in as, as quickly as possible. So as much as you can shorten that disease pr uh, uh, progression and, and shorten it down or how long they're going to be laying on their back, not doing anything, uh, the, the better. So that's exactly how we've been attacking this yeah. through mechanisms of action and through, um, and through uh, symptomology. Yeah. That's great. Um, I'm going to ask one more question, and then if anybody on on the, the line wants to ask a question, just uh, put it in the Q&A box or raise your hand uh, so I can see that. Um, so obviously, like I said before, you know, there's going to be a lot of nonfiction and fiction uh, depictions of this time period. Uh, but you all, like you said before, you, you respond to a multitude of threats. So uh, obviously understanding that this is an open source environment, uh, what really scares you guys? That that you know that if you wanted someone to depict that in a future uh, potentially fictional scenario, you know what keeps you up at night beyond uh, COVID nineteen? Well, just I, I think thanks for that, uh, Brett. I think one of the things about that is going back to contagion. Or if you remember contagion, I think I, I, I get my numbers mixed up, but for COVID, I think we're in the one and a half percent mortality rate. So that means one and a half percent of people who contract the disease die. And I think in contagion, it was in the 30 percentile or, or higher or even or even higher than that, like an Ebola like, uh, which is uh, Dr. Roos mentioned as a as a response that that uh, that has happened in the past. Um, I think that's that's to me is the is you know i've we've we've actually kind of war gamed this or, or actually uh, gone through some scenarios where well what if this next strain becomes you know and i'm knocking on some wood right make sure we're not uh, uh jinxing ourselves here but uh what if this uh, a next strain or sars cov3 or you know or covid 23 is is uh, has a 35 percent mortality rate and then how does that how in the in the exactly what Dr. Roos was talking about about rapid response and being able to invest in being prepared having that that group of, of subject matter experts world-class subject matter experts on the bench to be able to immediately pivot and work with all of our partners and focus on those those emerging threats I think uh, that's that's one of the 
one of the things that from a biologics perspective from bio um, that would that would uh, uh, that would that would really scare me about something that's going to you know people are not going to recover if you get it you die um, that that kind of line of thinking and then what that would do to you know the fabric of America and the world so yeah I mean that I, I, I echo those concerns I and mean, that's what I said early on in my opening remarks as we, we got lucky it, you know this is really a dress rehearsal and I've heard somebody refer to this this is like getting shot with a BB as opposed to a, a howitzer <laughs> um, so so from the the lethality of, of this disease I, I certainly you know something that's more lethal but equally as transmissible in the population would be would be frightening I mean it I guess if you really want to ratchet it up a little bit more is you, you sprinkle in a little bit of aerosol transmission so that takes the whole six feet apart off the table mm -hmm. we were fortunate that the that the particles sort of fall out of the air and and don't just continuously float uh, that would be a whole whole different uh, whole different game if we were dealing with that and um, you know not to geek out on you too much but the <laughs> uh, the virus that we have, that we're dealing with, you know, we, we early on when we were talking about, hey, is this thing going to mutate like the flu? Are we going to see sort of the waves that we saw with the the the, the nineteen eighteen strains? And and a lot of the scientists sort of said, well, it's got some it's got some ways of making sure it doesn't mutate as as rapidly. But um, you know, a disease that that mutated as rapidly as flu or or something like HIV, which actually which actually mutates faster and more than than uh, flu itself, that would be pretty scary because then you're constantly playing a game of catch up. It feels like we might be we might be there already a little bit with with COVID. And what's unique about this experience is there's never been a global response to to an infectious disease that is so quickly and rapidly started to push it back. And uh, so I think that's part of why we're seeing some of these these variants emerge. So so uh, scary, crazy for me is is more lethal, spreads through the air and mutates really fast. That that'd be a really bad day, in my opinion. <laughs> well, let's, let's hope for that not to happen. Uh, so yeah. uh, Jen Nicholson from your office is actually going to read our questions. I'm having All right. Seen, uh, she's going to read them for you. OK, great. Project my voice because you guys have the mics. How will this experience with COVID and working with all of the partners you mentioned change the way the Army and the DOD does business in the future in an effort to mitigate future threats? What are you working on now and what's next? Can I take first stab? Please. Yeah, so I, I think I think a great question. Uh, the question was is how how is this going to help us in the future and in our efforts? And in addition to the things Dr. Roos said, if you remember back a comment that I made about this repurposing effort where we're taking drugs and looking at the symptomology and the disease progression. Uh, and to be clear, I'm he's a scientist. I'm not a scientist. Uh, I have the experts that I work with on my team. I'm very, very proud of them, but I am not a scientist. But when when you look at the disease progression and you look and what we've been able to find when you look at disease progression of some of the 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 biological warfare agent threats that we're de we're developing countermeasures for as part of our core programs and core missions is that we're seeing across that symptomology of disease progression where if we're able to use uh, you know we want to stop viral replication well we have a drug uh, that can stop viral replication and it's on indication for this thing well all we have to do all we have to do, this is really simple, just do a couple of studies 
uh, with uh, with uh, with human subjects or that are that have COVID to prove that out and then show that 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 would be transferable to the disease progression on one of our biological warfare agents. So I wish it was that easy. I mean, it's not that that's not easy. Oversimplification, but I wish it was a, a case that we could do that for vaccines because it would be great to never get it in the first place or only get it so mildly that it never caused a, a problem at all, and then you wouldn't have a need for all of these diagnostic devices and therapeutics and keeping people out of hospital and trying to keep them off ventilators. But I think that's one of the great things. And plus, the relationships, the partnerships that we have. So while we had partnerships before and we had great friends and great colleagues that we worked with within DOD, inter, uh, the federal government, as well as, as uh, uh, industry and academia, we have cemented those relationships. I mean, and when I mean cemented those relationships, I mean cemented those relationships. They call us we kind of now know where the subject matter experts are sprinkled throughout all of our formations. We're on working groups together. We tackle problems together in a collegial manner without a whole bunch of uh, rigmarole and, and just get after it. And so I think that sense of urgency and that sense of, of, of uh, comradeship that goes along with tackling a thing as big as this, plus all the things we're learning for the future. I think that's there's a lot of benefit there. So, sir. Yeah, so I'll amplify that a little bit. You know, so we've always enjoyed a good, close working relationship, particularly you know, with our interagency partners, particularly Health and Human Services, uh, Department of Homeland Security, et cetera. Um, however, this experience, uh, you know, I, I can't emphasize enough the cementing aspect of it. But when you're working arm in arm with somebody in a crisis, nights, weekends, you name it, um, having to get information quickly up to leadership, White House, etc. You form a bond in a relationship that's just very different than sort of the transactional casual relationships that you have on a day-to-day -day basis. And, it, you know, in the past, we would share what we're doing. We talk about what we're doing, make sure there's good cross-pollination. But to really lock arms and work something together really honestly is transformational. And, and I truly, I, I truly hope and I see that moving forward, it's going to transform how we do business together. I think yeah. you're going to see less of DOD does this and HHS does this, but where are we working together on projects and bringing our inherent core capabilities where they're bringing theirs together and together we're, we're getting after some of these challenges. The irony of this is uh, we, it was about a month before COVID really hit in, in full, full effect, uh, just before the new year, um, last year, we were having a discussion with some of our interagent partners and some other folks about, hey, we really need to do a national level exercise on the rapid response and where are the gaps and seams in our ability to rapidly respond to an unanticipated unknown threat. And never imagined that we would be living that national exercise day in and, and day out. So I, I think we are you know, learning some of the seams and gaps um, that are coming out in this as well. Yeah is is an area where we're targeting and, and looking to put investment and, and doing that together with our, our partners. And we've also talked about gap fillers for yeah. those gap, seams and gaps that we've identified that could happen with any biological warfare agent or any kind of uh, pathogen, whether it be viral or bacterial that would show up. So I think that's obviously, yes, sir. Yeah. All right, so our next question, are there a lot of female soldiers wearing biochemical suits pursue, pursuing this career field protecting our forces for chemical attacks? I, I don't know the numbers of the breakdowns, but that is the suit for every soldier, uh, every 
yeah, that is the, the, the suit for everybody in the Department of Defense, whether you be Navy, Marine Corps, yeah, Army, uh, 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 so or, or Air Force. So, I mean, so as much as there are people, I think you said career field. So I don't know the numbers on the on you talking about career field for like the um, the folks that would be working this in a in a in a ground unit as opposed to like a scientist. But I would say that that is the uniform. So all uh, if there's 20, 25 percent females in, in DOD that are in uniform, that's how many wear it. So. Um, I, and I apologize, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but that that is the suit of DOD. Yeah, we we are. I mean, the the joint aspect of our name and our title, what we do is, although we're 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 Army, I'm an Army civilian, Colonel Eckmeyer is an Army officer. Um, our customer base is the entire military, so soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and and this suit, as as Colonel pointed out, is what everybody everybody wears, and so um, n nothing specific for male, female on this right. design for, for everyone in the military. 14% in Oh. Well, there you go. 14%. 14%. All right, your next question. Um, if, you, if you know and you can speak of this, how fast will first deployed and follow-on support troops, how fast are they being vaccinated? How fast are the first deployed and the follow-on support troops being vaccinated? That's part one. Part two is how long before the forces are prepared to respond immediately. So I think they're trying to get at how are they getting vaccinated? Like if, if a unit was going into combat and you've got the first troops going in, are they getting vaccinated? And then how long for the follow-on support? I give it a shot. So I so I don't know the numbers specifically, but I do know and have been a part of because we supply uh, uh, and work with them to try to solve uh, some of the supply chain and acquisition problems that they that they that they uh, come that show up. But there is a DOD wide vaccination program based on priorities, just like there's a, a, a nation, nationwide uh, vaccination program based on priorities. But to be able to talk specifically to to those pieces, that's that's not something I, I, I just don't I just don't know um, those other pieces. I don't know, sir, if you had anything to add on that. No, I, I, other than just that, that they're working through a, a prioritization within yep. the department, but not something can can really get too much into the detail on that. I think you'll both love this question. What role or connection is the JPO, does the JPO have with Operation Warp Speed? <laughs> Good. I'll start that yeah. one. Yeah, so, um, so we've been playing a pretty significant role uh, really, it's our organization in tandem with with many uh, other organizations. Uh, you'll see in the press. You can Google uh, a lot. You can Google our name, and you'll see us pop up uh, in in multiple different places. So, so one role that we've been playing pretty significantly is helping them put together the contracts and all of the doing all the deals, if you will, the negotiations with the companies that 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 are under the umbrella of of um, uh, Operation Warp Speed, or what was previously referred to as Ops Operation Warp Speed. So, so, but we do that in partnership with our Army Contracting Command, which is our our, our main folks that that do all of our contracts, as well as the legal support we get from folks out at Fort Detrick in the Medical Research Development Command, uh, as well as other DoD agencies that provide audit support and contract management support. So it's really a team effort. Uh, but we've been the Department of Defense. We're very good at putting contracts in place. We do a lot of business uh, with the defense industrial base and with others. And so we've brought that to bear uh, 
in this in this situation. And, and the JPEO from a program management side has been sort of honchoing and, and, and leading those efforts. We've also supplied um, many subject matter expertise. So uh, other scientists that are, are contributing to the teams and program managers that are helping run the teams that are running specific vaccine programs or specific therapeutic programs. So folks that are fully embedded day in, day out with that team, haven't slept, haven't eaten, haven't had holiday in, uh, in, in a long period of time. So we're, we're contributing people in force to that. Um, and then also assisting with uh, some of the industrial base expansion efforts of, of trying to ensure that the capabilities, the, the unsexy things that are needed to feed a vaccine or needed to feed a diagnostic or, or some type of treatment are available. So vials, needles, um, swabs, swabs, uh, fill finish capabilities, manufacturing capabilities. So we've really been um, applying our uh, skills and, and our people and our, our strengths to, to partner with the folks at, uh, op, well, at the operation and as well as part of uh, Health and Human Services. I don't know if there's any more you want to add. To no, that. just I, I think one of the, the main pieces that I'd like to add, sir, is that uh, as Dr. Roos mentioned, all the all the people in the subject matter expertise, very, I mean, very unique, very, uh, very niche capability areas where you can find somebody that has, you know, uh, that drug development experience and those things, and bringing those folks together, and they've uh, they've been able to do that. We, I mean, I mean, in in my specific area, for just for example, my specific uh area where i sit right now as a as a program manager within the medical community i mean i can count all of the ones that are that are my peers on on two hands so and over half of them are are working with the uh, the operation for the net uh for the federal response so uh very niche area very very highly sought after area but again there's just not a lot to draw from and yeah. so uh, their expertise being leveraged but yes it's, it, it is about the people left and two of them are pretty similar so i'm going to try to put sure. those two together uh, part one of the question is do we have enough mop gear for all of the united states army and then have either one of you seen a ramp up an increase in the production of the biological suits and masks and if you can talk about it is it because of an increase in a potential threat or hmm. is it just standard production yeah so um so the way the way it works in terms of how we do our business is we get we get the requirements for the from the services that say, hey, we, we need a suit that can protect us against X, Y, and Z, and we need X amount of those suits uh, at any given time. And so what our job is to do is not only to develop the capability that actually will do that job, but then also stand up the production line and the capabilities so that that can be maintained over time. So the Department of Defense writ large always maintains a certain stockpile and level of these suits that they can ebb and flow and surge based on contingencies. And so so there's a planning factors that go into if we're going to go to war and there's going to be this this amount of people involved. This is how many suits that we need to have available. This is how many suits each uh, e each soldier, sailor, airman, marine will get as part of uh, as part of those operations. So that's constantly happening in the background so that they're not having to just because something's happening today or tomorrow having to to ebb and flow on that the the flow and the production and typically what we try to do is you know a lot of the companies that develop these these pieces of gear are not you know giant companies and so the other thing that we try to do is ensure 
that there's a steady supply because you don't want to be in a position where you ramp up production, get everything put on the shelf, let it sit for 10 years and then come back 10 years later and have to ramp up again. Um, so we try to make sure we balance that so we can keep a, a steady industrial warm base doing the manufacturing, keeps people employed and ensures that uh, we have a ready supply that we can surge at, at any point in time. All right, so we have two more questions and we're getting close on our time here, so we'll wrap up with these two. Um, how has COVID affected our deployed troops and the missions? They are over they are, they are over there to accomplish. So our deployed troops, has COVID affected our missions? Well, I think what you'll see is, is that it, it, it affected deployed troops in location. So it's no secret that folks in, uh, in the military tend to be a lot closer. And then, you know, we don't have separate, you know, hotel rooms and, you know, in, in far away places when you're deployed, uh, uh, you're, you know, in, in, uh, you might be on top of each other. So it has affected, but a lot of the mitigation strategies that work for the entire public, uh, for the entire nation and for the entire world, as far as the distance, as far as the hand washing, as far as those kinds of things, when you implement those, you kind of mitigate that risk to a certain perspective. But um, it, I mean, to say it has, it's a, it's a, it has affected the deployed personnel. I mean, that's, that, that's, I mean, it obviously has because it's affected everybody in the world. But I think the same mitigating strategies and and a couple extra uh, that uh, that we do based on the unique pieces of the of the military, I think, are 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 working. And we uh, we build a lot of tests uh, to put out there uh, on the not we ourselves, but our partners build a lot of tests to be able to enable those uh, those forces to continue doing their mission, which they do. Right. Hope that answered it. One more question. Are you finding that working with the private sector as much as you are helps close the gap of understanding between civilian and military processes? Well, I, I can start, sir. Yeah, uh, so so for I mean, when I made made the mention of, of, of the military folks kind of like like me as far as uh, as far as medical acquisition people there's a larger uniform folks and we are working daily i mean this is my boss and he's a civilian uh, it is a military civilian organization that we work in and uh, so for within within the federal government within dod uh, being able i mean you have to have all kind you have to have you have to have it doesn't matter where you get the talent as far as if you get the talent from a, from a civilian or a military now when we go to externally to our, our our industry partners uh do i think it's 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 bridged the gap i think it's helped and that's just my opinion i don't i don't have any statistics to be able to tell you uh but we're a lot uh, a lot of the communication pieces are are because it's so urgent and so acute it's uh, let's get on the phone. Let's get everybody on the phone. Let's put this. Let's uh, let everybody ask all their questions, and let's make sure that everybody understands because we don't have time to dilly dally. So that's I, I don't have any st stats to tell you, but I would just say I would I I would hope so. Yeah. I would think so. At least I've in my experience I've seen that it has. Yeah, I, I would say that. Um, so I've had more conversations with CEOs and senior vice presidents mm, yeah. and folks in industry, honestly, than I've had my entire career. Um, yeah. As I mentioned to you before, we're doing a lot of support for the operation. We also have a, an entire portfolio within the department that we're doing in terms of vaccine development and therapeutics. That's sort of an enabler, yeah. if you will, and a complementary to the operation. So the combination of those two things, I mean, we, we've been dealing with industry uh, nonstop. And I think it's done, you know, so we would not be here and would not be as far along as, as we have been without the support 
of our industry partners. Uh, and that includes commercial industry, that includes academia, that includes some of our uh, non-government organizations. I mean, it really has been truly tapping into all of those entities, big and small. Um, and I think through this experience, we've learned a lot. We, I mean, one of the key things in negotiation is uh, you always want to understand what the other side wants and try to find a middle ground. Well, you know, I've done more dealings with major pharmaceutical companies, like I said, than in my life, and I probably will ever do again. And, and understanding what a big pharmaceutical company wants and what's driving their equities and interest in, in, in uh, developing a vaccine or a therapeutic, understanding what we want, finding that middle ground, um, has been a, a learning experience for both sides that I, I absolutely think will translate into how we do business in, in the future and you know how we potentially change some of the, the rules and laws about how we do contracting and how we manage um, those types of efforts. So uh, I, I think it's been a, it absolutely has been an education process for all of us, some growing pains, of course, <laughs> along the way. Um, but I, I'm, I'm very hopeful of what comes out on the other end. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, Jen, if you want to put up that last slide there. Uh, I, I would just say uh, thank you, you know, speaking on behalf of all the men and women who serve the nation. Thank you on what you all have done through probably your most challenging professional experience in the last 10 months, and I'm assuming so based on your discussions. Uh, thank you for everything you've done to, uh, to be part of this whole of government approach to, to responding to this threat that is not only devastated you know, hundreds of thousands of families in this country, but you know, millions worldwide. Uh, so, you know, on, on our behalf, thank you for, for what you do. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that slide is up. I'm not sure. I don't know, we're having trouble with our camera here to see whether that's up or not. But I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who has participated uh, in this first Joe Talks. We, we hope that it's met your expectations. Uh, we will uh, send out a note after this just to ask for your impressions of, of what you liked and didn't like, but also potential topics. So um, we do want to talk about the next Joe Talk, which will be February 24th, uh, again at 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, we will be, uh, as you all know, in the entertainment industry, uh, you're well aware that diversity representation in entertainment media is critically important. Uh, you all want your projects to reflect uh, what this nation looks like. It is a diverse nation, and it's where our strength is derived from. Uh, well, the Army is the same way. Uh, we want the, the folks that wear our uniform to look like the country that it's defending. Uh, so our next Joe Talk is going to feature Dr. Anselm Beach, who is the Deputy Assistant Secretary uh, of the Army for equity and inclusion agency he is spearheading the uh, project inclusion effort uh, which is the army's holistic effort to listen to our soldiers civilians and family members and enact initiatives to promote diversity equity and inclusion uh, so a vitally important initiative that the army is, is spearheading uh, with the with the intent to give a voice to our teammates in the army uh, to, so that they can undertake a comprehensive effort to identify bias, any bias at all, and, and to mitigate it. Uh, so Mr. Beach uh, directs the daily operations and executes one of those comprehensive uh, complaints adjudication processes, proactive management and prevention programs within the federal government. Uh, so within the, the project inclusion umbrella, 
there are various initiatives, the Army Diversity Plan, Army People Strategy, and the updated White House Executive Order on Diversity Training. Uh, so I think it's going to be a great topic um, because I think it, it hits right where uh, you all in the entertainment industry are focused. Uh, you know, you're focused on making sure that you, you have uh, projects that reflect the nation and it's vitally important to us. And like I said, that the soldiers uh, that, that represent this nation look like this nation. Uh, so this is a, a very holistic effort to get after that. So with that, um, I'd like to just say thank you and thank you to Dr. Roos and Colonel Eckmeyer again for coming on uh, this very first uh, trial run, possibly not knowing totally what they were getting to do. <laughs> but uh, obviously a super relevant topic for right now. And, and I think uh, I think it's uh, something that we all needed to hear today. So you, you definitely made me feel better. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Yep, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Uh, we'll see you again uh, February 24th.